Hello and welcome to the Wealth Reliance Podcast. My name is Dave Deal. This is the podcast for the side cash hustler. If you want insights, real life experience from people just like you on how they started creating side income, you are in the right place. Documented experiences of people creating a few hundred dollars to extra tens of thousands of dollars a month. Make sure to subscribe and review. This means more than you know. Also, feel free to check us out at selfreliantwealth.com. Before we jump into the episode, let's take a minute to thank our sponsors. Welcome back to the Self-Reliant Wealth Podcast. My name is Dave Deal and I'm your host. Today is episode number 69 and we're going to have a very, very good time on this episode. We're going to be discussing a lot about real estate, uh, especially focused on the multifamily sector and really just diving into um, what it's like from a recovering lawyer's standpoint, getting into investing in real estate, how he started out his journey and what really took place from the beginning to where he's at today. So our guest today is Jeff Holst. And we met through LinkedIn, believe it or not, one of the most amazing platforms for connecting and networking and just building your your database of really, really great people to know, um, to build relationships with. You never know who you're going to meet and what type of walk of life they're in or what stage they're at. So really, let's just jump into this interview, Jeff. Come on out, buddy, and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, sure. Hey, thanks for having me on. And yeah, I agree with you on LinkedIn, by the way. It's a great platform. I actually meet a tremendous number of people on the different social medias, but the quality of people you meet on LinkedIn is usually a, a different level uh, than, than what you meet on, like, say, Facebook or Instagram or TikTok, right? <laughs> like, you could probably meet people on TikTok, too. I haven't met anyone there yet, but you never know, right? It could happen. Do that um, dang TikTok, man. I hate it and I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's really addicting. I had to delete the app from my phone because it's just so ridiculous. Yep, agree. Um, yeah, I was doing like a little ridiculous TikToks. If people want to really see my my weird side, they can go on there and see <laughs> me like lip syncing to like Fireball by Pitbull, you know, or something like that. That's awesome, man. I love it. You got to You got to have the weird side, right? Yeah, yeah. But I I got also got to focus, right? Because I'm a multifamily real estate investor. That's what I do. Um, but actually, I hate that definition, like the um, sort of off topic. But but in general, I don't like to define myself as a thing other than the most interesting person in the world. Like that's my real goal is just to be, you know, but I know the Dos Equis guys kind of got the market on that. But but, uh, you know, he's not going to live forever. So at some point I can be the most interesting man in the world. Boom. Done and done. I think that's a really good goal to have. <laughs> Well, awesome, man. So we had a quick conversation uh, about a week ago and you shared with me kind of the beginning stages of how you got into real estate. Um, prior to that, you were a lawyer, right? You were an attorney and you focused primarily on what type of law? Uh, I did bankruptcy law for the most part. Um, I actually started out, I took over a small family practice. My dad was a lawyer um, and he just had himself and that was it. And, uh, and he was in the process of transitioning out of law at that time. And he did everything, you know, he did general business stuff, transactional stuff, bankruptcies, criminals, divorce, you know, whatever. Uh, and I did that originally because that's all I, you know, that was the exposure I had. But I quickly realized I didn't like fighting over children. So I got rid of the family law side pretty quickly. And then I had a couple of really terrible criminal cases where my clients just weren't good people, right? <laughs> like, and you know what yep. you expect of criminals? And I was like, I don't really like dealing with criminals. 
Uh, and so I just kept, you know, parsing stuff out until I was doing mostly bankruptcy. Um, and we filed, this is 2007 and eight when I was really practicing law um, as my primary income. And in 2008, obviously the world was um, falling apart and there were a lot of bankruptcies and we filed a lot. Like I filed over 400 bankruptcies in about a 12 month period there leading up to the summer of 2008. So. Jeez, that's crazy. And what really made the transition point or what was the, the tipping point for you when you said, okay, I'm kind of done with practicing law. I want to do something else. I mean, it's obviously a great skill set to have that background can apply to anything you do, but were you just tired of it or what made the transition? Oh yeah, no, I mean, I hadn't, I actually got into law. I mean, a long, long story short, I got into law because I thought it would be a way to make money. Um, I wanted money so that I could travel uh, and I could do fun things like, you know, scuba dive and stuff like that. And uh, so I had this idea that I would just go make money and then I would spend my money and I would enjoy my life. Uh, that's an entirely wrong reason to practice law. You should only become a lawyer if you want to be a lawyer. That's just like a pro tip. That actually applies to all careers, even getting into real estate. Only invest in real estate if you want to be a real estate investor. Like that's just this general life rule, uh, which we don't always learn it right away. A lot of people are in careers that they don't love. Um, I think that's a shame. Um, I was kind of fortunate and unfortunate at the same time. I was diagnosed with leukemia in 2008 in the fall. Um, and that made it so that I couldn't work for a period of time and forced me into personal bankruptcy. So I was a bankruptcy attorney who filed bankruptcy. At that point, I was like, you know, I don't really like practicing law that much. And um, I don't have any, really, I don't have any credit. I don't have any money. I don't have any debt. So I'm going to just close the law firm down and, uh, and take a job. So that's what I did. Um, I didn't like the job either, but I knew I didn't like the job. That was the really good part because knowing you don't like something is a motivating factor uh, for, you know, doing something else. And then the other thing that happened was, um, because I thought I was going to die for a while, I recognized how short life was. Uh, yeah. And um, and then I realized that someday may never come. Uh, and so you might as well make today someday, right? Someday is today. Um, and so I just started investing in real estate as soon as I could. Um, it took a few months, you know, save up a little bit of cash. Um, but the market was super cheap back then. It was 2010. Uh, the market was crazy. And so we were able to start buying stuff uh, like $30,000 condos for cash because I didn't have any credit. So, Sure. Well, let's talk about that for a minute too. Just the mindset shift. I mean, you're coming off of this diagnosis with leukemia. You're going through that battle. And then all of a sudden it's, okay, I got to start doing something. I got to make that transition into real estate. And I think a lot of people just from a mindset standpoint, I mean, we all go through difficult things, right? Difficult challenges, trials, whatever you want to call them. But what was it for you that, kept you moving forward? What was it that just helped you say, okay, I can do this and just start picking that shovel up and, and taking one dig at a time? Well, I mean, I didn't want to die and I knew I needed to have ability to pay my bills. So th those are the big motivating factors, right? But uh, I think the most, the most important thing really is that like, I've always been pretty optimistic. And so even when I thought I was going to die, I was kind of like, well, I just need to like make, you know, arrange my fares so my wife will be okay. Um, and so when I first got sick, I was like, well, how do I make money after I'm dead? 
and and that motivated me to get moving forward. I thought I was, you know, a definite goner. Um, you know, there's several months there where it didn't look super promising. And then uh, I got on this new treatment protocol and everything improved very rapidly. And then I thought, you know, uh, I kind of like real estate. Um, and I, I, I want to make sure, cause I don't know how long this is going to last. I might, you know, a year from now, two years from now, I might, you know, start regressing and, um, you know, fortunately it's been 10, you know, 11 years now. Um, and I haven't, I haven't regressed. Right. So in fact, my latest blood work was the best I've had since I was diagnosed, uh, last December. So, and we're only, we're down to checking once every year now, which is, which is a sign that they're not particularly worried about it, right? If they start checking you every couple of weeks then you know you got a problem. And when I first got diagnosed, they were checking my white blood cell count uh, almost daily, um, which is really annoying to get all those blood draws. Yeah. Uh, and then it went to weekly and I thought that was really nice. I only had to go to the doctor once a week, you know, and then, then it was every other week and then it went to monthly and, and eventually went to 90 days and then six months and then a year or so. Uh, so I like that trajectory. Um, and, uh, no, anyway, awesome. so yeah, that motivated me, but the other part of it was too, I have this personal life philosophy. Um, I call it a no bad days philosophy. Um, basically I just, when I was 17, I just decided I wasn't going to have any more bad days. Uh, I woke up one day and I was feeling, you know, teenage angst. I won't say depression cause that's like a medical condition, but I felt, you know, what people commonly associate with depression. I was just unhappy with my life and I just kind of went, huh. I'm young and I'm in America and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reasonably intelligent. I'm healthy. Uh, I might as well, uh, you know, have a good day today. Uh, and so I just said, today's a good day. And I said it over and over again. It was an affirmation uh, back, you know, this is the, the, the mid nineties. Um, before I knew what affirmations were, the internet didn't exist like it does today. I mean, it was around, but we weren't, we weren't watching like gurus talking about affirmations all day long on YouTube because Google hadn't invented YouTube yet. In fact, Google hadn't invented Google yet at that point. Right. So, yep, yep. Um, so we were just, uh, we were just out there uh, just telling people, I just started saying to people, yeah, you know, I never have bad days. Today's a good day. I said it over and over again until I believed it. Um, and, uh, and I haven't had a bad day since it's been 25 years. Dude, that's awesome. I think those seriously are some major gold nuggets for everybody to take away from this episode, you know, already, but having that optimism and making that decision, it's a conscious thing to make a decision to say, Hey, look, there are no bad days. Yeah. There's going to be moments that possess obstacles or challenges, but we can learn and we can grow from those. As long as we keep moving forward, then anything's possible. So I, yeah. I love that. Thank you for sharing. Oh yeah, no worries. I mean, it's so true too, right? Good and bad stuff happens to me every day. Happens yeah. to everyone every day, right? I mean, you're going to have good and bad stuff that happens to you. The trick really is just focus on the positive, minimize the negative. Uh, I mean, there's a little, it's a little bit more involved than that, but it really is at the root, just a choice. You have to make the choice and then you have to convince yourself um, there's this thing called um, the reticular activating system. Tony Robbins talks about um, some people call it uh, the Bader Meinhof effect, but the basic idea is that um, your subconscious mind defaults to what's familiar. So if you right. spend a lot of time 
thinking about positive things and and thinking about things that that are on the good side of the equation then you start to see those things easier and you recognize them more and so it's so ridiculous that by the time i got diagnosed with leukemia um people were coming into the hospital and saying oh i bet today's a bad day like they almost wanted to prove me wrong right like see i knew you would have a bad day eventually um and i was kind of like well i got diagnosed at 10 o'clock at night most of the day was pretty good and uh <laughs> the next day was a little bit harder because you know i knew i was sick the whole day um but i remember it was about two in the afternoon um this nurse came into the hospital room it was like a shift change and she looked at me and she said oh my God, Jeff, I'm so sorry to see you here. And I recognized her and I was like, oh my God, Shelly, I'm so happy to see you because she was like a childhood babysitter of mine, one of my favorite babysitters from my childhood. I hadn't seen her in a decade or more. And I was just excited to see her to the extent where like that made it a good day for me, even though I was in the hospital probably dying, right? Like I thought I was on the way out and I was like, well, at least I got to see Shelly because that's how warped my brain is until like finding positive no matter what um and then people will say well yeah but was it really a good day and the answer is oh yeah in retrospect absolutely because if it hadn't been for that i'd probably be an unhappy attorney by now right (laughs) now i don't practice law i haven't taken any legal cases in a decade and i get to um have this amazing life where I just invest in real estate and do things that I love. I mean, I've done some crazy things. I've been to Egypt several times since then. Um, I've climbed Mount Kilimanjaro last year. I learned to scuba dive on the Great Barrier Reef in in Australia. You know, I mean, I just, I get to do all these amazing things that I would never have done if I had still been practicing law, even though I thought I was doing that because I was going to make money and do these amazing things. The reality is if you don't love what you're doing, you're never going to be good enough at it to be like make the kind of money to free, free up your time. Yep. Amen, man. I love that. It's such a great point. Really finding love in what you do is so important. I think you're right. I mean, there's so many people that don't, they don't look for the positive. They don't look for the optimism, but they also just don't love the job that they're doing. And when you do enjoy it and when you love it, it makes it so much easier because it doesn't become work, right? It just becomes part of your life. It becomes part of your day-to-day activity. And yeah, the moments of difficulty just become another thing to get over and move around and walk away from. Oh, wow. That's embarrassing. No, I know. Now I got to check my phone and make sure I turn mine (laughs) right. (laughs) I did though. So I'm good. But uh, yeah. And um, yeah, you can edit that out. You'll be fine. Or you just leave it in and it's more fun that way. Right. Exactly. It's more raw. And people are like, oh yeah, see Dave is all right. He's a good guy. (laughs) He's like the rest of us. Because I've done that, by the way, more times than I can count. I've done a lot of shows. Um, I have two shows myself. So I I do shows regularly, you know, weekly. And then um, and then I've been on a bunch of other people's shows. And uh, um, yeah, I've I've probably done that 25 times. So I wouldn't worry about (laughs) it too too much. It definitely happens. Oh man, that's awesome. Well, okay. So let's jump into multifamily then. I mean, if, if somebody wanted to get started into that, can you share kind of your journey as to how you got started, what you did and what somebody else could do? Oh uh, yeah. So, I mean, keep, keeping in mind, I had no money and no credit when I started investing in real estate. So I didn't just jump into multifamily like day one. And by the way, I don't really recommend people do that. Jump into multifamily day one. I know there are uh, gurus out there. They're like, Oh, you should just buy as many doors as you can right away. And um, those people tend to, uh, 
I think that they, they tend to be trying to sell you a program more than to actually help you. Um, yeah. There are exceptions, I think. I mean, uh, if you have good partners and you have people you trust and you're going to partner with them, it can work. But there's something uh, that, that happens when you start doing deals on your own. You start learning about real estate um, that gives you the ability to get into bigger deals. So I would start by just doing something small. But if you've already got, let's say you have 20, 20 units, 15 units, whatever, you've been investing in real estate a couple of years. Uh, yeah, I would encourage you to get into multifamily right away. Um, uh, there's an incredible opportunity in multifamily because it's valued differently than, um, than single family assets or small multis. Uh, once you get about five units, it becomes an income approach valuation, and then you can control the value. If you increase the income, the property goes up in value. Every time you get that forced appreciation, and uh, it's just amazing. So the way I got in um, is we found a 12-unit building, and we put 20% down. And we had bank relationships because we already had other properties. And so it wasn't a giant leap. If you bought a 12-unit building and you had zero units, the bank is going to underwrite the deal, but they're also going to underwrite you. So it's important to have some experience in that market. Um, and once we were able to do one deal, the next deal was even easier to do. And now it's easier for me to borrow money, honestly, to buy a 20 or 30 unit building than it is for me to borrow money to buy a, a single family house. It's, it's kind of weird. Like, I can't a get a mortgage on my own house, but I can go buy an apartment complex. It's no big deal. Man, I love it. No, it's such a backwards thing, but you're totally right. I mean, it opens up a whole different world when you start basing it off income approach versus just, you know, what do you make as a W-2 employee or whatever and trying to get the, the mortgage. And it's, yeah, the self-employed people definitely have a harder time in just the single family area for sure. Yeah. I mean, and I, I understand why it is. It's because the single family uh, lending market is primarily dominated by uh, government-backed securities uh, that are designed for, you know, first-time home buyers, for for people to buy their second home, whatever it might be. Um, and 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 the safest way that they can do that is to look at people's income and the predictability of their income. If you're a multifamily investor like me, you have a negative taxable income most years. Uh, no matter what you do, you always end up having negative taxable income unless you're uh, not taking advantage of cost segregation, which if people aren't, they should definitely look into that. I'm happy to talk more about that with people if they want. Um, but uh, yeah, but I mean, it's, it's unbelievable how easy it becomes to, if you have experience and a track record though, to finance deals that make sense. So if you can find a good deal, banks will finance them for you. They just want to make sure that it that you have the ability to manage it and that the property itself pays for itself with an adequate cushion. You know, I mean, you're going to have a debt coverage ratio involved and things like that, but, but it's a, it's a really interesting field to be in. No, I love it, man. So if you were to break it down in just a the simple manner, I mean, what are the components that make up multifamily that are different from single family? I mean, obviously you've got to have money. So that can come from, um, institutional financing it can come from private guys um i doubt you're really spending a whole lot in the hard money and more shorter term stuff right yeah commercial stuff's a lot longer um but what are the some of the components that play in that you know i mean if you were to simplify it into five steps what would that be yeah. So, I mean, listen, it's not all that much different than other real estate in the sense that the first thing is just deal flow. you got to find the right deals. Uh, so you've got to do, and, and it's more broker relationships. I think there's not a lot of, um, 
I mean, you, you can sometimes find if somebody who owns an apartment complex and word of mouth it or like go send them a, you know, a yellow letter or something, but, but mostly it's broker relationships. Uh, and you're going to try to get the deals before they hit the traditional market because the best deals go to the, from the brokers directly to the people they know are going to close the deal. So you just want to be out there talking to brokers all the time. So that's step one. Step two is get really good at underwriting deals because whatever the broker gives you, no matter how much you think that broker is your friend, it's going to look great on paper, but that doesn't necessarily mean it really works. Um, I've never seen a pro forma that doesn't work ever. Um, right. And uh, there's a lot of them that don't work in reality, though, right? You know, they look good when, when they send it to you, but then they're like, oops, we forgot to put property management on here. Oh, we think that this is a property that will never need a new roof ever, <laughs> you know, stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh, and those things just aren't realistic. So you've got to get really good at it and you want to keep track of all the deals you underwrite. Um, I think... I keep a scorecard. So if I underwrite a deal and I don't buy it, I go back later and look and see what it actually sold for. And I say, ah, ah so they, that, they, they, they agreed with me. It eventually sold for what I thought it was worth. That means I didn't offer aggressively enough, right? Or if it sold for more than what I thought it was worth, then I go, what, what did I miss? Like, it, it, did I miss something, right? Um, or if it, saw, it sold for way less than I thought it was worth, then I'm like, whew, good thing I didn't buy that one. <laughs> you know. Yep, but yep. this is a learning. It's about building a model for yourself um, that, so that when you do see a deal, you know it's a good deal. Um, and, ho and however you can create that model, a mental representation, spreadsheets, um, general experience, all that stuff is really important. So just look at a lot of deals. So first, get deal flow. Second, look at a lot of deals. Um, those How are many first deals do you steps. think you've looked at? Oh, I don't know, hundreds, thousands, uh, lots, uh, you know, I mean, especially if you count all the deals that we did before we got into multifamily, it's an insane number. Um, right. But the more you do this, the easier it becomes. Uh, the other day, I just put a 16 unit under contract. And I only had to look at it for five minutes to know that I wanted to make an offer. And I made a full price offer. If I had waited in this market till the next day to underwrite it, I wouldn't have got the deal. It would have been gone. Um, I saw it pop up on the market and I went, I want to buy that. And I knew the agent, that's another thing, right? It comes back to the relationship. So instead of sending an email or reaching out through the MLS or whatever, I texted him and was like, I saw you just listed this. I want to buy it. Yep. And then of course he's going to push it to me because we have that relationship and I, and he knows I'm going to close it. He knows I'm not going to mess around with it. Now, if we discover something, we're in due diligence now, right? If we discovered something that was dramatically different than what we expected, yeah, we might not close or we might ask for a reduction, but, but in general, you have to, you have to have credibility. That's super important in this market. And then the, the next step is going to be on the operation side. So you're going to close the deal. You've got to have good banking relationships to do that. Um, and then you're going to want to like, um, you're going to want to make sure that you're really good at operating. You know, you're going to uh, insane focus on return on equity. Um, for me, uh, or return, I shouldn't say return on equity. I need to come up with a metric. But what I really focus on is um, if I'm putting money back into the property, how is that impacting the equity? So for example, if I'm going to put, um, you know, maybe I'm going to make like a, like a privacy fence between the units, let's say, because I did this recently. Um, can I get more rent for that? If not, um, why am I doing it? Does it actually impact the value or is it just spending money? Because, you know, the property can look super nice and it doesn't impact the value. Right. Um, and I'm not saying don't fix stuff up that needs to be fixed up because in the long term, that's going to hurt your value too. Um, plus, 
you need to look at this like, you know, we have about 250 units, which is to say that there are 250 families that live in properties that I personally have an ownership interest in. And I'm not talking about like syndicated deals. I have a few of those that I put in other people's deals. I don't even think about them, right? That's passive stuff. But on the active side, these are people that are dependent on me to provide them a quality place to live. So you have to meet that standard. Like if you don't, then that's, then, then you shouldn't be in investing at all. Right. But, um, but assuming you've met that sort of threshold of providing quality housing for them, um, then you have to start thinking about if I uh, renovate to put in washer and dryer hookups, do I get more money? Okay, so it's $30 a month more in my market, let's say for uh, washer and dryer hookups. Okay, well, if I do that, um, you know, how much does it cost me to do it? Well, it's going to depend on the property. Where, where are the water lines? What space do you have? What, do you have to take out cabinets? All the stuff. And you just figure it out. And then you say, okay, it's going to be $1,500 to put them in. I'm going to make $30 a month more. Uh, and I'm going to have some costs. So let's call it $20 on the NOI. Uh, so that's $240 a year. All right. So now I know it's $240 return on that $1,500 investment. Is that a good return? Well, I just go back to the cap rate. If the market cap rates uh, 15%, it's not a good return. I shouldn't do it. If the market cap rates six, I should do it. Um, and the way that math works is you just take the 240 divided by the cap rate, right? So if the cap rate's 10% and you're going to make 240 on the NOI, it's worth $2,400 in equity. Right go. to 240 divided by 0.1, and uh, and that's how I make all those decisions. So 1500, I get 2400 back, so I'm gonna do it. Yeah, and that definitely uh, makes sense. And and I think if you've really drilled down on that, that's how you force appreciation, uh, and that's how you get to the point where two, three years down the road, you're refinancing, pulling out all of your money, keeping the property, uh, it's still making cash flow, and you can go put that down payment in the next deal. And we've done that successfully. That's uh, our first deal was a 12 unit, second was a 19. We've since re, and those were in 2017, since refinanced both of those, taken the cash out, bought something else with it. Yep. And, uh, and we just refinanced a, a 41 unit that we did uh, 18 months ago. Same thing, you know, pulled all the cash out. Now we can move on, buy something else. Well, and that's, I mean, again, it's, it's a process, right? I mean, you have to start somewhere and then like you're talking about, it takes time, but you can start rolling those over and doing multiple deals. I think that's another comparison maybe that a lot of people make. It's like, well, this guy's done so many deals. Well, I haven't done that. I don't have the credibility, but you did it by starting one deal at a time. That's right. right. I mean, that's how well, it goes for everybody. Yeah. My first deal, this is a $30,000 condo. I mean, and it wasn't that long ago. I mean, it was 2011. So, you know, 10 years, um, one deal at a time, and then you're doing 40 unit buildings. And, you know, this year, hopefully we'll get 400 additional units. That's our goal for the year. I love it, man. I love it. And it grows, right? That goal grows yeah. exponentially as you continue to do stuff because you see what's possible. Absolutely. And, you know, I see some people that are out there doing like 400 deal doors in their first year. And I'm like, whoa, but I'm, I'm actually happy with the trajectory that we have because, um, you know, you build a lot of knowledge and you get into a really defensive position. If you go and buy 400 units your first year and the market turns against you, you're toast. Yeah. But if you have solid cash flowing assets that you've owned for a long time and you've had equity build in them and you go buy 400 units and the market turns against you, you have a couple of bad years and then the market comes back eventually because real estate's super right. forgiving over the long term. Yeah. Uh, as long as you don't have to refinance or sell in a recession, you're going to be okay. 
Yep. No, I love that. And I think that's something great to learn from that, you know, 07, 08. If you can hold long-term, you'll ride out, right? Oh it's, yeah. Listen, if you bought in two, if you bought in 2006 and you sold in 2010, you, yeah, but that was painful. If you yep. bought in 2006 and you're selling today, you're jumping up and down for joy, right? That's yep. the thing. And I mean, I know that's 15 years. Uh, it's a long time, but um, real estate's not an overnight success story. It's a long-term thing. And the thing is, let's say you bought in 2006 and the property you bought never went back up. It went down 40% and it stayed down 40% forever. It would still be okay if you held it for 20 or 25 years, because it would pay for itself. Yeah. It would amortize away that debt. And you'd end up with, you know, you might be, you bought, paid a hundred thousand dollars for it and it's only worth 60, but you only put $20,000 down so your yep. 20,000 turned into 60. I mean, it's not as good of a return as you expected, but it's still not that bad, right? I mean, you yep. still came out ahead over the long term. And and I, yeah, I mean, I, it'd be, unless you pick the wrong property, you're very unlikely to see something go down 40% and never come back. Right, I right. mean, if you're in the wrong neighborhoods, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the wrong neighborhoods that can happen, but I mean, and, you know, so be, and, or if you're in a situation where, uh, uh, you know, a single employer, uh, and the employer goes out of business and the population of the town dies off. I mean, there are places this happens. Uh, you can mitigate that by doing more deals though, right? And, and diversifying your market and your type of deal that you're doing. Right. No, that definitely makes sense. Well, another question I think that a lot of people have is you know, when it comes to partners, what, what do you do? Is there a certain criteria you have when you're going to work with somebody new? Um, I mean, obviously, once you build a reputation with them, it's a different story, but you know, you're constantly moving and shaking and doing deals. Do you have something, some sort of a criteria when you're interviewing a new partner to work with? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. Um, so I didn't do this in a super sophisticated way originally. Um, I just kind of had a friend that I went to law school with that was doing real estate and I started partnering with him. And then the next partner was my dad. And uh, the one the one after that was, uh, you know, was just somebody that we knew. Uh, and so so I, I wish I could say I was super sophisticated about this. I actually think this is a... Um, an area where people mess up a lot. And I've just been really fortunate Agreed. because um, I've seen partnerships go really bad, especially when I was practicing law, um, which by the way, even in this deal, I don't, I don't want you to think like, I'm like, Oh, I like David. I'm just going to make a deal with him. Um, we write everything down. We talk it out. We make sure we have yep. a plan and we know whose responsibilities are whose. Right. And, and even still it does stress relationships sometimes, you know, there are times when my dad and I disagree on something. Imagine that, right? There are times when, when my partner Travis and I disagree on stuff and my partner Brian and I, um, and you know, Brian is, is the one that I spent the most time thinking about because it was later in my real estate career, 2017, uh, 2018, somewhere around there, we started partnering. Um, and he was already doing the kinds of deals I was doing. I was already doing the kinds of deals he was doing. So we had a lot of synergy. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and we developed a relationship, but that was, uh, a situation where I started partnering with someone I didn't really know that well, and it could have worked out poorly as a result of that. Um, and so we were super careful, you know, we did one deal together, we didn't come up with some grand plan to build a giant business. We're like, we're going to do this one deal. Uh, it was an office building, and we're going to go buy this and it was a syndication too. And we were the only two GPs on it. 
Um, so it was like, uh, we're going to go raise this money. We're going to, you know, keep a piece of it and we're going to run it. And it's worked out really great. And we've done several deals since. And in fact, started a, uh, a podcast together, uh, the old fashioned real estate show, which by the way, if you haven't checked out, you should, cause it's hilarious. We just get drunk and talk about real estate investing on YouTube. Love um, it, man. We, I yeah, love we that. drink, we drink old fashions. So like people are like, oh, it's, you know, old school. No, it's not old school. It's just literally we're drinking bourbon and talking about real estate. Um, and, and it's been super amazing. But again, I am a big fan of partnering with people that you are, would be willing to, you know, spend a lot of time with, because it's kind of like a marriage, right? Like, if yep. you marry the wrong person, it's a real problem. If you partner the, with the wrong person, it's a real problem, because you're stuck with them, at least for the life of the deal, right? Yep. I mean, probably longer. And, um, and so, you know, be really slow to pick your partners. And, and, uh, and I know a lot of people say, well, don't partner with family, don't partner with friends. I'm not sure I agree with that. If you're going to partner with family and friends, you know, be really clear about what you expect. Write it down. Make sure everyone agrees on everything up front and think about stuff like, well, what if this happens? What are we going to do? Even though you don't think it's going to happen. Um, and then also recognize that, you know, it's going to tax your relationship some. So be willing to take that risk. But uh, yeah, I mean, partners, it's hard. Um, I don't actively seek partners as a result of that. I try to, uh, I try to stick with the ones that I have. And yeah, I mean, we do partner with people in the sense that when we raise money for one of our deals, um, yep. they come on board with us and you have to be careful even there. You don't want to, you don't just take everyone's money. Um, you know, for one, you have to make sure you're complying with your legal requirements if you're raising deals. So you have to have a relationship or you have to have a accredited investor status or whatever, depending on what exemption you're using. But on top of that, you also, um, you want to you want people that that fit the kinds of deals that you're investing in. If someone wants cash flow and you're doing an appreciation play, they're going to be a pain in your neck. And and really, you shouldn't take their money. You should tell them, you know, I don't think this is the right deal for you. Um, and you need to be willing to do that. You need to be willing to walk away from a deal because you can't raise the money. Uh, if you can't raise the money, maybe there's something wrong with the deal, or there's something wrong with your presentation, or you just don't have the right investors, and that's okay. Um, it's way better to walk away than to do a deal and have investors suing you because they're not getting the results they wanted or, you know, or they're just pissed off. I mean, it, look, for me, my investors are friends of mine. I mean, I, if I take your money, David, I'm, I'm not going to be like, I'm going to take that more seriously than my own money, right? Yeah. That's how you have to look at that. Like, because yeah. you don't want to ruin that relationship. Well, one, you're never going to be able to do a deal with that person again, but probably none of their friends, none of the other people that they talk to, plus maybe no one ever again, if you lose your investor's money. But but on top of all that, they worked hard for that money. You're you're potentially ruining their, their retirement. Their, uh, their future is in your hands when you, when you invest their money or they invest their money in you. Um, and so you got to take it super seriously. And so you don't want to take the wrong people's money. And you you want to think about those things a lot and be really careful and clear about what you're doing and, and outline the risks. That's another thing. Make sure that they're able to um, absorb that risk, whatever it is, because not every deal is going to work out forever. Yep. No, I love it, man. I think those are awesome points. Um, you know, very similar to some of the lessons I've learned over the years, but yeah, I mean, just being clear, having expectations, having stuff written down because time goes on, you forget, but if you have it written down, you both agree to it. You're looking at all the different outcomes that could go wrong and how you'd react to that. I think it really sets you up and, and you're right. I mean, I think if you keep that mindset of like this person, like I need to treat this seriously, then 
again, you're going to have a lot more um, respect from that person and you're going to be able to keep that relationship going long-term, which is, again, if you look at everything, it all comes down to relationships. That's how we become successful from a happiness standpoint. That's from a financial standpoint, it all comes back down to relationships and the better we can build those relationships and the stronger they are, when the taxing moments come, we can work through them and we can be better off because of it. Yeah. No, I mean, and that's the thing. It's all a team sport. Like life's a team sport. Real estate's a team sport. Uh, you just, yeah, the hundred percent, it's all relationships. Um, that's the same thing with finding deals. It's the same thing with partners. It's the same thing with marketing. It doesn't really matter. Everything's a relationship. Yep. I love it, man. Well, we're kind of getting close on time. So I've got one more question that I'd love to ask. And I think you're going to have a really, really good insight to it. Um, but it's the question you know, if you were on your deathbed, which I think you've kind of been in that mindset or thinking you're in that mindset, right? Um, and you had one day to live, what would your legacy be? Or what would you leave behind with whether it's family, friends, what would just be that advice that you'd leave behind? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, super intense. Um, <laughs> well, I know what I thought when I thought I was going to die. And that was, that I wanted to spend time with my family. Like I, that, that was it. I wanted to spend time with them. I, I, I didn't have any like super sage advice, but it was, you know, listen, don't regret, like, like, like make sure you're living your life in a way that you're not going to say, Oh, I wish I did this. I wish I did that. Um, I spent a lot of time thinking about this exact topic. Um, my other show, which I didn't mention is last life ever. And it's all about living the best version of your life and, uh, and, and really thinking critically about, you know, these issues. Um, and I don't think there is a really, like, I wish that, you know, you could say, hey, I'm on the deathbed and like, here's one sentence that will sum up all of the wisdom that you have your whole life. And maybe there is, I just haven't found it yet. Maybe it takes your whole life to get that. Um, but I would say right now, geez, uh, just keep moving forward. I mean, like I would just tell people, you just gotta like learn from your, your experiences and just keep moving forward. Try to live the best life you can. I love it, man. That is a great answer. And again, I mean, that's what it comes down to. The relationships we have are the most important. We put one foot in front of the other, we keep moving forward and you're going to get through whatever you're going through at that time. And it always gets better. Cool, man. Well, I love it. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on today. Um, the last thing that I'd like to do is if, if somebody wants to get in contact with you, you mentioned a couple of podcasts that you host. Um, so I'll make sure to put those in the show notes, sure. but then what's a good way to get in touch with you? Uh, you know, honestly, I'm pretty active on all the socials, except for TikTok, as we just covered at the beginning of the show. Uh, so, uh, you know, at Jeffrey Holst on Instagram, I'm on there a lot. Um, otherwise the last life ever private Facebook group on, um, is a good one too. So we, um, that's not real estate related, but it's where my passion is. I want to help people live the best version of their life. So we spend a lot of time in there, uh, producing content, but also just interacting with people that are doing cool stuff. So. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks so much again for taking the time to be on the show today. And, um, 
for everybody that's listening. I hope you got some valuable information, whether you do real estate or not. I think there's some very, very good lessons that can be learned from this episode. And if you do do real estate and you're, you want to get into multifamily, this is a great place to start. Um, it sounds like uh, there are some great um, tips and tricks that can come from Jeff in the different groups and podcasts he's mentioned as well. So feel free to reach out to him. And uh, as always, make sure to infuse hope to those in need by teaching correct principles that lead to result-driven action. Take care and have a fantastic day. Are you ready to learn how you can take your life and your business to the next level? Learn how you can create side income and have different assets pay for your life and your lifestyle? Tune in next week to the Wealth Reliance Podcast. This is Dave Deal signing out. Thank you so much and have a great week.